Uh, how are we different? When our students come in, because of who they are and where they're coming from, we do services that are unusual for a college to embrace. The idea is that these students are doing everything in their power to get through, and we have to make it as easy for them as possible. Early on in this process, I was told by a colleague that by giving this help away, by creating tutoring and, and all these services, that I was infantiling students. And I said, isn't that nice that you can somehow make this the student's problem, that they should somehow buck up and be able to take on all their issues. We'll get them there before they finish, but let's get them to finish before we start piling on problems for them that they, that they don't need coming. Everyone, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we get to speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Today, I'm speaking with the highly entrepreneurial, strategic, and visionary university president, Mark Scheinberg. As president of Goodwin University in East Hartford, Connecticut, Mark has led a significant transformation process over his 40 years as president of Goodwin. His bio is linked in the show notes so that you can see the full breadth and depth of his professional journey. Mark, I have been really looking forward to our conversation today. It is such a pleasure to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Well, Melissa, thank you for having me. And um, when seeing all the people that you have talked to before, I feel like I am very honored to be in the company. So thank you so much for having me. And I know we're going to have a very dynamic conversation. So um, the first question that I want to ask you, we usually like to start by learning something about the professional journey of our guests. So what's the backstory that led to your buying a business school at the age of 24 years old? So it's, um, it's one of those typical entrepreneurial stories. Uh, I got out of college, I was doing my master's degree, I had to get a job. And I worked actually at a business school in Hartford called Moore School of Business, who had been around since the 1860s. And uh, I worked there as an admissions counselor. I will tell you that it was, it really made me fall in love with the whole concept of students, especially the kinds of students that, that we serve. And frankly, I was very lucky in so far as it was a reputable school because I, at 22 or so when I got there, I would probably not have known the difference right away. So in any case, I was making what I thought was incredible money there. I come from a very, uh, I'm trying to think of a good word for it. I, I wasn't exactly poor. I was just close enough to it that I knew what poor was. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I was always very entrepreneurial, very scrappy. I often... I often uh, define myself as a street urchin growing up. And so I was making some money, which was what some people would have done to go buy a better car or something of that sort. But instead of that, I was buying apartment buildings in the West End of Hartford with the money I was making. So by the age of 24, I had about 50 apartments, not buildings, but in, in various apartments, uh, my father was a tradesman, so I learned carpentry and stuff and, set, and lived in the apartments and actually worked on the apartments while I was doing this. Wow. And suddenly, um, after a couple of years, uh, the world was changing and this tiny business school came up for sale, an ad in the newspaper. It was non-accredited. It had six students that summer. 
uh, I thought I was, you know, when you're 24, you're bulletproof. And uh, I thought that I would, I would uh, buy this thing. And I did not have illusions of a grandeur of what it would be down the road. That would be silly. And people who ask me that question uh, give me much too much credit. The, uh, but in any case, it was, I went for the first three years not making a paycheck from that institution. It, I, I actually worked on weekends playing music and that's how I fed my family. And mm -hmm. uh, the program itself was mostly, the school was mostly a sub-grantor to the state and other nonprofit agencies. So it was working with a lot of people with disabilities. Uh, and, uh, and so it was a, it was really, talk about scrapping, think about running a school that has no accreditation, no financial aid. So it was, uh, it was a trial by fire to start out in this sort of industry. Uh, so so what, what, uh, what caused me to do it? Probably uh, enthusiasm and ignorance, like most entrepreneurs, uh, <laughs> some combination of that. But um, so that's how I started out there. I can give you a little bit of the history of what happened after that. Uh, oh, I think, yeah, yeah, I think that would be great because this little school is is really what gave life to, and birth to what is now Goodwin, right? That's, that's the, correct. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. It was called Data Institute. Okay. Uh, I actually bought it from a uh, little old German woman who was quite wonderful, and uh, she was a refugee herself when she got here, and uh, I thought I knew all these things about this. I thought it was quite impressive of myself that I was going to come in and buy the school. And really, that wasn't the case at all. This is a woman who, who was trying to figure out who was going to adopt her child. Okay. And so I really had to prove myself to her that, the, that I would share her sense of what that institution should be, especially with the, with the clientele and people that she was serving. And she actually stayed with us for after I, after I had purchased the place, she stayed with us another 12 or 14 years until, frankly, until her own death. And okay. so, um, so I had, I had a, a great mentor in her. While I was working on the business side of the house, she was very much in charge of the academic side of the house. Happily, I made a determination very early on that I would never countermand any academic decision that she was coming up with. And that was a good way to keep myself checked so that, yeah. I, so that I would not push too hard, which is easy to do when you are really financially that unsettled. Mm. In any case, uh, we were working still as, as a subgrader to nonprofit agencies. That's what we did. So when you saw an article in the paper that the Urban League got this big funding source or Jewish Family Services got this big grant, that would be true, but they would actually have us do their training. And so what was strange is that we were working with probably six or eight separate entities for which we were considered what you would call a training sub-grantor. And in the same classroom, you'd have all those agencies represented at the same time. Now, these agencies wouldn't talk to each other because they were highly competitive. Sure. But we worked for all of them. And people would tell me those years, well, since you're not really making a lot of money, why don't you just become nonprofit? And I would have to explain that if I was nonprofit, I would actually suddenly become a competitor 
to the same agencies I was collaborating with. And so you had to stay a for-profit entity and then you were not uh, considered a competitor to anybody. They could all use the same architect. They could all use the same painter on their buildings. No one cared. But, um, but it was a strange way to sort of find your place as a business model. For uh, sure. Do you, do you remember what you paid for it? I'm just curious. $30,000. Wow. I remember $30,000. Okay. There may have been an additional 30000 that was due. I, you know, I got to go back and look at the paperwork, but, but it was... <laughs> But it was that kind of money. It was yeah, not. Yeah. Um, it was not. You know, some millions of dollars. I would not have been able to do it. So yes. And did you have any background in education? What was your undergrad major? Undergrad major was actually in environmental studies, but I was okay. certified as an elementary teacher. Oh, I had okay. opened a preschool uh, when I was twenty-one or so, a nonprofit preschool in Bristol, uh, because I couldn't find a job teaching at the time. <laughs> And you had to be teaching in order to go for your master's degree. And so, and so since you couldn't find work, uh, they actually offered, they said I could work as a long-term substitute, but if you've ever substituted, that is not the way you want to spend a year. And so uh, instead of that, I actually owned, I opened uh, with a friend, a nonprofit early child education program in Bristol from scratch. And, uh, and that was my teaching practicum. Yeah, okay. Well, I think you were destined to get into education one way or another here. And uh... yes, I, well, <laughs> I actually did a lot, I actually did a lot strangely in high school uh, about education policy. So so okay. yeah, th this did feel very very natural to me. So, I would like to ask you to do a post-mortem assessment if you will, cuz flash forward here you are 40 years. I would I would be interested if you were writing, if you were sitting down and writing a case study today about the evolution of Goodwin from that point of purchase when you handed over the 30,000 some dollars to the present day, what are the major themes that tell the story of the evolution of the institution? And are there some essential strategies or decision points that you can look to that help explain the trajectory? It's a great question. And uh, yeah, I struggle with some of it because those lessons change depending on where you are in your life cycle. In the very, very beginning, you know, the, the real lesson is, is, is don't die, don't kill the, the organization. It's strange that when you are young and very, very fragile, little things can, can, can kill you. In the very beginning in those three years, not only did I not make a paycheck at all, but there are more than a couple of times when you'd ask a couple of key people to hold their checks until Monday, because the check hadn't come in yet from, from the government or somebody else that you were waiting for. I, may, I remember, as all entrepreneurs remember, the real big mistakes. I remember at one point we were going to lease some equipment. It was word processing equipment when word processing was a thing. Um, and I remember we had to come up with $5,000 for the down payment to lease this equipment. And ultimately we didn't need the equipment. And I said to the company, you know, we're not doing it now. I'll take the five thousand back. We're not, and they said, "Well, no, you're that's that is your deposit. You can lease something else if you want to." I'm like, "No, we don't need to do that." And actually, it was a loss of five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars doesn't seem like a lot of money now, but it did then. Mm -hmm. And so you learn a lot of the toughest lessons just in those simple mistakes you make. The um, but that sort of 
the lessons you get out of that is actually to become really fiscally prudent. Even now we have, oh, I think about $250 million in assets at Goodwin and now certainly much more with, the, with, their, with our re recent uh, purchase, but our debt remains about 10% of the whole. Um, mm -hmm. we, we, I'm very afraid always of that day coming uh, where something bad is going to happen. I remember older people when I was young that came out of the depression and suddenly, you know, every dollar is very dear. I think I am still that person. Um, I think a second thing is actually, it took a long time to earn respect on our own terms. It's funny, uh, people have certain expectations of, of what, what everything is. People have definitions behind everything. But here we were doing essentially business and occupational education on a post-secondary level. And that, that, um, that's not an easy box to fill. And so since there's no box for it and people cannot easily define it someplace, they want to twist you into something that they recognize even if you don't. So as an example, we always call ourselves a community-based organization. There's a fork in the road where you're either a community-based organization or you're a college. And I don't understand why that should be. And so we, first and foremost, we serve students, we serve our communities, we're a community-based organization. And if the best way to serve them is through our skills of being a college, so be it, but not the other way around. Um, another lesson is to stay profitable. The word profit is not a bad word. If you're not profitable, you can do nothing else. You have to have not only enough profit to stay alive, but enough excess to take chances on things. Because if you don't take chances on things, you will never grow. And you, you will, you're just counting the days off until your eventual demise when something changes. So you have to always operate with, with a little bit of cushion. And I find that not only colleges, but their boards have no sense that they're not working properly on a budget that goes to even. It should be a budget that has some profitability in it. So when you make a mistake, and we all do, the outcome of that is that you may go back to even, but not so that you lose staggering amounts of money that you weren't expecting. And maybe the last thing is to you know, create a culture that is the opposite of hierarchical. Um, it's interesting in academia how much titles do matter. Uh, when we started, you know, I asked you to call me Mark, and the reason why is everybody on the campus calls me Mark. Every student calls me Mark. Um, I become president Scheinberg when I leave the institution at times when, when that is the natural way to be addressed. But I've also seen places where everybody is known by their title. Hello, I am tenured professor Mark Smith. Who cares? If you can't make the case for your, your purpose and your being by just being Mark Smith, the tenured professor part is the second thing. It, shouldn't, it should not matter that much. In fact, when people I find are desperate for their title, I always question whether they're trying to puff up their resume. Because internally, it shouldn't matter that much. Externally, I can get it. And in fact, if you're working in a community where a title matters, that it gives you enough gravitas in order to work with people that you have to, 
at the level you have to on the outside, so be it. Tell me what your title should be. Okay, you can have that title. I don't really care. Um, and it's uh, it becomes really important that I that I am recognized and seen to being as accessible and common as I can. I pick up the papers outside. I'm not afraid to pick up a hand and help a person who is on the facility staff move something. It's not because I'm demeaning myself, quite the opposite. I am elevating them so they know that, that they are equally as involved. And maybe the last thing I mentioned, which I'll mention is that uh, you're trying to create a team. And so creating teams is a group process. Oddly enough, your senior team at a place, no matter what its size, is akin to a support group. It's not command and control. If your job is only to take orders, you have then no investment. In fact, if your job is to take orders, it means that someone else has all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I don't want people to think I have all the answers. And in fact, when I'm in a meeting, I'm usually the last person to speak because I don't want anyone to take my lead because I won't get any, any good feedback. So if a senior team is a support group, you treat them quite differently. And that's pretty powerful. And that actually unlocks a lot of energy. These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Baypath University Doctorate in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then designed the courses in response. The HELOS program prepares students to become highly effective, self-aware, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, you will learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd. I want to start this second half by thanking you for your candor and for the wonderful nuggets of wisdom you shared during the first part of our conversation. This is wisdom that obviously comes from many, many years of lived experience. And so I do appreciate your willingness to be honest uh, and very realistic about the evolution that your institution has uh, been coming through. Now, I'd like to go back a little bit in terms of the history of Goodwin. When did you become nonprofit and why is that an important uh, strategic decision point for 
your institution. So yes, and you know it's so important to mention that because I, even now, you know, twenty some odd years later, people are always having this little bit of well, what are they exactly? Um, yes, we were Data Institute, and we and I took over in nineteen eighty one. In 1999, we finally got our approvals in the state of Connecticut to become a Goodwin College. And in fact, no one had done that to our knowledge in Connecticut for over 40 years, uh, made that switch to collegiate status. And that was a problem because no one knew how to do it. And so the process of doing it was a learning experience all around. It was not widely appreciated. Uh, I was told very clearly by a number of consultants that this would not happen. And so don't, you know, don't get your hopes up. And some people did not take my money because they didn't want to waste it for me. And so we actually, I remember meeting, reading the Jim Collins book, uh, you know, Good to Great, where they talk about BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. Our big, hairy, audacious goal in the 1990s was to go become a college. And why? Because our students were coming out of a very strong program and getting jobs almost without fail. And yet, if they wanted to go back to school to, to uh, codify that into a degree, they were made to start from scratch. They got no credit for anything they were doing. In fact, um, there is a law still in the books in Connecticut that says that you cannot offer college credit directly or by transfer unless you're a college. And so our students were not allowed to get that credit passed. We finally had one professor, his name was Carol Grisette. I don't know if he's still around um, in the 1990s. And he was teaching for us and at another local college at the same time. And he was teaching the same course with the same book and the same syllabus. And I said to the president of the college, I said, okay, we talk about equivalences. I have the same guy teaching the same course with the same book. Can those students transfer those courses? And the president said, well, yes, yeah, so if they passed our final, I guess they could, you know, they could transfer those courses. And I said, okay, that's a breakthrough. He said, but they have to pay the tuition. And I said, okay, so this is not about academics anymore. <laughs> Apparently you have, it is all about money. And if the coin of the realm is that to be respected, you have to be a college then fine, we'll, call, we'll go be a college if that's what makes you feel comfortable with what we're doing. And that began the track in the 1990s to go become a college. We became a college in 1999. At that point, by the way, I'm no longer uh, working for nonprofits and needing to be differentiated. And so I decided then, I always decided, I always thought at some point I would take the institution nonprofit either when I retired or when I passed on or something like that. But I said, well, if I'm not fooling myself, then pull the trigger, give it away. And so in 2002, I applied to the IRS to become a nonprofit. And that was granted in 2004. So, so about 20 years back, we became nonprofit, which, um, which had an interesting reaction from people because my business friends would would say, "Okay, well, that's pretty, you know, that, that that that's pretty strange, but but I get it. It's quirky." My nonprofit friends were 
immensely skeptical. That's what I found really fascinating. Uh, in fact, there was a state regulator that famously told me, uh, Mark, I don't know, you're too smart to have done this. I was giving away 90% of my assets. You're too smart to have done this. I don't know what you're pulling, but I'll spend the rest of my career trying to figure it out. And so, so instead of getting, you know, <laughs> instead of getting <laughs> lots of awards and appreciation, there was a high degree of greater scrutiny and skepticism about what it is that I might have done. We did that back in the day when there were no management agreements. There was no side money. I wasn't getting any money out the back door. And, um, and but it was necessary because everything that's happened since would not have happened unless I gave the place away. That was available only to nonprofit institutions. So if I was nonprofit, it would be my students at the time might get a few thousand dollars more in state aid. Ironically, that program is pretty much killed at this point uh, after years of, of, of the state having financial trouble. Uh, mm -hmm. But that was one of the impetus, one of, yeah, one of the reasons to, uh, yeah. to take it on. So 20 years is not that long. You've been a nonprofit for uh, 20 years or so. And yet over those 20 years, I mean, you've really emerged as a very significant educational uh, entity uh, in the greater, the greater Hartford, um, broader Connecticut area. So can you talk a little bit about Goodwin University today in 2022? Um, what, is, what is the school all about? You know, what are the, the programs you offer now graduate degree programs um, at the master's level? Uh, you've recently made a really significant acquisition and I'm going to come back and ask you about that in, in a minute. Um, but, but essentially, how is Goodwin different from other uh, more traditional colleges and universities today, given your growth? And then I want you to clarify something you were quoted as saying several years ago. You were uh, interviewed for some article, and you said at that point that academe's bitter medicine is your business plan. So how does that factor into the Goodwin University of 2022? It's a it's a great question, uh, Melissa. A as you know, if you look at our background, we were mostly dealing with poorer students seeking their their first uh, job. Frankly, getting into a career, and that never changed. So, who is our student? Uh, currently, the demographics of Goodwin is that we are minority majority, give or take a percent percentile year by year. We are. Uh, we're about 75% female. We are two thirds single parents. Um, we are two thirds of our students have already gone someplace and failed before they came here. So the students that we have, to your point, are not the students most sought after by traditional colleges. We still do much of what we do in certificates uh, as we do in degrees. We do everything with what's called a building block curriculum. So come to us, if you, if you stay for us a year, you'll have some kind of certificate that'll get you a job if you if you have to stop out or drop out, you're already gonna be working. Stay two and you'll get, you'll add a, an associate degree to that and on and on. So even though you may be going for a bachelor's or a master's degree as your outcome, 
long-term, we have to make sure that, that a student has what they need to be self-sufficient as quickly as is possible. So even though you may be getting a degree in um, environmental studies, so one of the certifications we can give you along the way from very early on so that we know that you are covered and you will be able to land on your feet no matter what happens to you, even if the world changes around you. So that's why it's a very different sort of model. It isn't a model where you get, where nothing happens for you until you've attained a bachelor's degree and then suddenly you're viable. For our students, it has to be viable sooner. For our students, I didn't mention, but 80%, 85% are working adults. Average age of 30. So everything has to be built around their schedule. We can do everything we do online for the most part, but it's not a matter, our purpose in doing that is not to put programs online because our, the students that we deal with by and large fail in online programs, but rather so that they can work some of their classes around a schedule as a parent and a working adult so that they'll take their uh, critical coursework on ground where we can put a hand on them. But if they have a course that they need to take, especially outside their major, they can grab that on the odd weekend or whenever their, their, their schedule allows them to. Uh, how are we different? The students that we're dealing with are poor and they're not able to write checks. It means that by necessity, our tuition is one of the lowest private school tuitions in the area. It's not that we wouldn't like to get more money, but there's no place to get it from. So let's not kid ourselves and, and let's call the tuition what it's most likely to really be. When our students come in, because of who they are and where they're coming from, we do services that are unusual for a college to embrace. Uh, we can co-screen students in financial aid for food stamps. We have a diaper bank, we have food banks, we have emergency housing, we have individual counseling, we have, um, it goes on and on. But, but the idea is that these students are doing everything in their power to get through and we have to make it as easy for them as possible. Early on in this process, I was told by a colleague more than once that by giving this help away, by creating tutoring and, and all these services that I was infantiling students. That was the word. And I said, isn't that nice that you can somehow make this the student's problem that they should somehow buck up and be able to take on all their issues. We'll get them there before they finish, but let's get them to finish before we start giving the, piling on problems for them that they, that they don't need coming in. Um, if you look at most traditional schools, they put applicants into quadrants. And, and the, X and y, uh, the X and Y curve is, uh, is going to be, coordinates are going to be, you know, how much money can you pay and, and how academically prepared are you? Everybody wants the quadrant that says that they are really academically prepared and they have scads of money. Everybody wants them. As a second quadrant, I'll take someone who has money and needs more preparation because at least they're gonna write a check while I'm giving it to them. Now, if they're highly academically prepared and have less money, I'll take some of those, I suppose. Um, in so far as I can, as long as I have enough of the other guys to actually pay the bills. 
And then finally, if I have less money and less academic preparation, nobody wants you. And it won't be said quite that coldly, but nobody wants you. Uh, and these people need handholding. These people need, uh, need ways to make sense of what they're taking at school. Uh, the three quadrants that are less wanted are, 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 are essentially, that's our space. That, that's our prime time. That's our wheelhouse. And so, and so you put all those services in place. You put a lot of learning communities in place. You do a lot of very focused uh, teaching. Internally, we embrace, uh, we are, we are, uh, we embrace almost individualized education within the classroom. Um, it's called UDL, it's Universal Design for Learning. And, uh, and our classes operate that way. And we have an incredibly good completion rate for the students that we're dealing with. We, we'll, we'll work with them all. So if you can stay alive and make a profit on those people, that is a population that's not going away. And that, has, that means that I'm not really worried about the high school demographics in Connecticut that everybody else is. I'm not trying to get that big a piece of that pie. Yeah. Well, and talk about impact. You know, we all know that's, that's one of the greatest issues uh, in our country in terms of the educational pipeline. Um, so how many, how many total students do you have at this point? At Goodwin. At Goodwin, we have about, depending on the time of year, whatever, 35, 3,600 students. Wow. And um, so it's not, it's not small, surprisingly. <laughs> there's, there's an awful lot of these people, uh, people <laughs> that are in this situation and it grows all the time. This is a very interesting time with, uh, with COVID being, uh, you know, such, having such impact because it impacts our students quite a bit insofar mm -hmm. as I can't come to school unless I know where my kids are, whether they're safe and taken care of and whether they're in school. Right. So, um, so we're going through the same uncertainty that all colleges are for slightly different reasons, but still and yet, our, we, we've remained steady even through this, that students are still coming to it. I expect when this finishes that you're going to see, uh, if, my, if my experience is any, is any guide, we'll see a jump of 10 or 20% in student pod. So what is your tuition, your sticker price at the undergrad? The undergrad level, our sticker price, uh, you know, all in is, is about $19,000. Yeah, boy, that's, that's remarkably. And you don't have residential facilities, right? At, at Goodwin, you, you don't have all the, um, the extra bells and whistles uh, that you might find on a traditional college campus. Is that, is that we true? We certainly don't have as many. We, we do have some residential uh, apartments here uh, that we use that we you know use for students that especially if they have to be uh, for themselves in a different surrounding but again that is an expense so mm -hmm. a student who's having money get into that tuition number to find any extra money to have housing is is equally tricky mm -hmm. so we do have some we do have club sports but we're not we don't have big money that's put into some of the extracurricular activities that you'll have at, at some places. And if our students are working adults, even when we have them, it's hard for them to find the time right. to do that anyways. So now graduate, 
you now you now also offer graduate programs. So how does that fit into the big the big uh, vision and strategy? And how many graduate students do you have? So first question is that the mission, our stated mission is to have only programs that lead towards uh, careers that, that, that provide a living wage. So, so for example, with that being our mission, if we actually have programs that can't do that or they're not placing people, we will prune them and everybody knows it, which keeps everybody really um, aware of and focused on keeping their programs relevant. Their advisory boards are very active and they're making sure their students are placed or we will end the program. It's, it's a cold thing, but that's why we're here. With that as the mission, the mission doesn't change even if you're changing uh, your scope. So the reason why we have the particular graduate degrees that we've started with is that they tend to augment what's happening at the undergraduate level, still leading people towards those same careers. So we, we're immensely strong in the nursing area, for example, where the largest nursing school in Connecticut, even at Goodwin before any acquisition. And so we certainly have master's programs now in nursing, besides regular masters, we also have APRN programs or, or programs that lead towards an APRN designation, both in family and in, uh, in psych APRN, which is so desperately needed right now. We have a master's in public health. We have masters in business, but they're all built off of a lot of the healthcare and business programs we do at an undergraduate level. So not an enormous undergraduate uh, population yet, it's growing uh, carefully and and uh, as we always do it, it's always done you know one step at a time. But we have a few hundred students in in graduate programming. Well, and your approach to pruning is also unique <laughs> uh, in terms of the academy. That that's not uh, typically the way that academic program portfolios are managed. Uh, so, isn't it funny that um, I, I there are so many ways which seems so basic when you think about it, uh, that the academy shies away from and, and has been able to for years and years because it was a different environment. Uh, you know, these ideas become something you have to think a little bit more about in the environment that we're in and that we're in today. Solson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious You is a production of Chellop, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. We were very inspired by our conversation with Goodwin University President Mark Scheinberg. A reminder that this is part one of a two-part episode featuring President Scheinberg. Watch for the release in a couple of weeks of the second episode where we will hear firsthand from Mark about the recent acquisition of the University of Bridgeport, as well as his thoughts about what leaders most need today to be successful. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly leading edge thinking and higher ed webinar series. Be sure to rate and review Ingenious You wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. 
That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.